Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. And if you haven't done so, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would be much appreciated. This week, I would like to read a recent review from VBot, who says, Amazing podcast, keep it up, five stars. Furthermore, they write, Any PCV or RPCV knows that one of the most frustrating parts of service is trying to put into words when someone asks you what your Peace Corps service was like. As an RPCV, I found it extremely refreshing to hear the stories of PCVs in different countries and to know there is someone out there working hard to make sure their stories are heard. I highly encourage anyone thinking about joining the Peace Corps to listen to the podcast to gain a better understanding of what service might be like and to also realize that one of the best parts of being a PCV is making your service your own. Thank you, Tyler, for putting together this awesome project. I hope I can share my Peace Corps story in the future. VBot, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm glad that you appreciate my work, and hopefully we can get you on the show soon. Speaking of the show, on this week's episode, I talk with Michael Buckler, who served in Malawi, leaving a job as a lawyer, and then came back to the United States to found an amazing organization, Village X. Without further ado, here is Michael's story. This is, this is, this is, this is my, my Peace Corps, Peace Corps, my Peace Corps, my Peace Corps story, story, story. My name is Michael Buckler, and this is my Peace Corps story. So this is the introduction to my book um, called From Microsoft to Malawi, which is a book that I wrote uh, in the 2009-2010 time frame immediately after I got back from Peace Corps. It was actually kind of funny because I was at a Peace Corps writer event around the 50th anniversary of Peace Corps here in D.C., um, in that, in like the 2011 time frame, and I remember uh, someone who was also a Peace Corps author and had served in Peace Corps in like the 60s uh, said to me, "Wow, you know, you wrote this me- memoir right after you got back. Like that was probably too soon." And um, I guess she had written her book decades after she served in the Peace Corps. And uh, I was like, at first, I, I felt, you know, for a long time, I, I thought she might be right. And I, I was like, well, you know, that's a good point. I, I really, uh, I should have reflected more on my experience and let it sink in and then written a, a book. But now I think she was totally wrong, actually. I think you really want to write. If, you're, if anyone out there is interested in writing a book about the Peace Corps experience, do it right after you get back. So it's, it's kind of raw and fresh. As someone who wrote a book about his Peace Corps experience, I agree. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely beneficial. And I, I think the impetus for me right finally finishing mine was was realizing that that every year i wait it gets fuzzier the 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 memories and the the nuances of the stories and then i start filling them in with what i think i thought at the time which is not true to the experience exactly yeah it's uh i find that i mean just i think healthy human beings just um 
they tend over time to sort of minimize uh, uh, traumatic things that happen to them and, and to sort of um, emphasize mm-hmm. uh, good things that happen to them. And, and so that's, that's totally human, but it also distorts, I think, the accuracy of the book. Um, so if you write, if you write uh, decades after you served, um, you're probably writing a story that is much rosier uh, than it actually was in, in reality. Uh, so here's uh, the introduction to my book. What do poor people in Malawi have to offer us? Most people think nothing. I disagree. I love the amalgam of sights, smells, voices, and cultures that make Malawi such a paradoxical place. Simultaneously uplifting and depressing, welcoming and foreboding, liberating and oppressive, cruel yet undeniably vivacious, occasionally commonsensical yet vexingly illogical. Malawi gets in your blood, inhabits your dreams, and dares you to be smitten by its charms. No matter where you go, it never leaves you. I wasn't always this way. Before joining the front lines on the war on global poverty, I grew up in small-town America and did everything expected of me. Church choir, little league, boy scouts, good grades, prestigious schools, top jobs, and holy matrimony. But something was wrong. I was living everyone else's American dream. So I walked away, determined to fulfill my destiny my way. I haven't looked back. Peace Corps Malawi was my calling. Without running water or electricity, I slept in a dilapidated brick house on the outskirts of a rural village, devoting two years of my life to gritty introspection, personal enlightenment, and international development. I spoke local languages, cooked on open fires, drank from a nearby well, bathed out of a bucket, and shit in a hole in the ground. I was white, famous, and celibate. Well, mostly celibate. I tried my best to help. I taught at an underserved school alongside Malawian colleagues. I opened my home and heart to three of my Malawian students, whom I now consider sons. I hobnobbed with crooked politicians and starry-eyed development workers, watching aid money well spent and grossly wasted. Every day brought a blank slate of astonishment and toil as I labored from the grassroots in nowhere Africa. Welcomed as a Western sage, I was humbled by the wisdom of the plain-spoken and powerless. Whether international aid has improved their lives is a matter of heated debate, but no one is asking them. The dominant voices are wealthy donors, government officials, and international economists, not the intended recipients living in places you've never seen or heard of. But they, too, have insights and opinions that need to be considered. Indeed, they have as much to teach us as we have to teach them. This is what I learned. Well, Michael, thank you for starting off your episode like that. And welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So start off by letting everybody know a little bit about yourself. You already stated the fact that you, you served in Malawi. When did you serve and what exactly were you doing as a volunteer? So I served from 2006 to 2008. And I was... Uh, uh, I was brought in to be an education volunteer. Um, so I was assigned after training, I was assigned to a school, uh, to teach math. And like, I think a lot of, um, Peace Corps education volunteers, I ended up teaching a lot of things, um, and doing a lot of secondary projects. And prior to Peace Corps, which you also kind of alluded to in, in the title of your book, mm-hmm. uh, what were, what were you doing? What were you doing uh, pre Peace Corps? Yeah. So Pre-Peace Corps, um, I uh, went to 
undergrad for engineering and then um, tried to figure out what to do for grad school and settled on law school. And then uh, when I graduated from law school, the combination of law and engineering kind of led me to patent law. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I worked for a couple of judges for, uh, I did two one-year clerkships um, in the DC area and in Memphis, and then decided that I wanted to move to, I was young and wanted to move to a city uh, that uh, seemed interesting and up and coming. And so I moved out to, to Portland, Oregon. And uh, yeah, as an East Coast kid, I wanted to try the West Coast experience, which was amazing. And I worked for a private law firm in Portland, Oregon for four years doing patent litigation, mostly for Microsoft. Microsoft was the biggest client. And I think at that time, probably half the firm's business was coming from Microsoft litigations. Okay. Yeah. And what was the, the driving force from, from going from being a, a patent lawyer, litigation, uh, what I assume is a, a high-paying job and what some would think of, like, okay, you made it. Like, you're, you're, you're doing well uh, as, as a lawyer. Your, your career trajectory is amazing. What drove you to walk away from that or step away, maybe momentarily, to, to go serve? Yeah, so it, um, I had always wanted to do Peace Corps since high school, and I kind of felt like I was on this fast track, you know, of... Uh, schools and achievements and, you know, you know, getting as you, you know, going to the right schools and getting the right grades and getting the right job so you can set yourself up and all the stuff. And, um, what I found is that, uh, I enjoyed the intellectual side of patent law a lot. I didn't like the schedule very much. It could be pretty brutal. Um, I also, you know, litigation is about fighting. It doesn't have to be, but it often is about fighting with people. You're fighting with the other side. You know, there's a lot of, there's often a lot of nastiness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it tends to be a good fit for people who are a little bit more on the sociopathic side. (laughs) Um, I I mean, seriously, just like people who are wired a little bit differently than I am. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to be a little more on the empathetic side. And so I like to, I like to collaborate, um, cooperate. Um, I'll only fight if I, if I'm sort of cornered. Um, so I felt like there was a little bit of a cultural disconnect there for me, uh, in, in the private law firm environment. Uh, and I also, I was just working crazy hours and just feeling like my life was kind of passing by and there was some money, but it wasn't like wildly lucrative mm-hmm. to the point where it would, it would justify sticking with it for a couple of decades and then retiring at you know 50 or 45. So, um, yeah, and it was just sort of a. You know, my parents were uh, were still um, relatively young and healthy, um, so I didn't feel like they needed me. Um, other family members were doing well, and so I just felt like it was a, a like a rare opportunity in life to just sort of go um, and uh, and and pursue something that I'd always wanted to do, and I felt like. You know, life is short. Why not now? Um, a lot of people, I think some people think, well, I can always do it in retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also, that's, that's certainly true. Uh, and I think a lot of retirees have great Peace Corps experiences, but I didn't want to wait that long. And I, I was uncomfortable with the uncertainty of waiting that long and not knowing uh, that it would be guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that I could just take a break, do it. Uh, I felt like there was a lot more to the world than, than what I had seen. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a small town. My parents are from Baltimore originally. So we spent a lot of time in Baltimore and a lot of time in DC where my aunt lives. So I was exposed to kind of small town, what would now be called Trump America. Mm -hmm. 
as well as some pretty liberal cities. Um, so I, I, uh, I got to see a lot growing up, but my parents weren't big travelers. I, you know, I didn't leave the country until, um, yeah, I was in law school and, um, I just felt like there was much more for me to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that kind of what it comes down to. And I wanted to do it in, in a service capacity. Um, I didn't, I did, wasn't necessarily thrilled about, um, just kind of wandering. I liked the, the fact that Peace Corps provided, uh, you know, mission that, uh, that I admired and provided support for, you know, for that mission. Um, and when I applied, I applied in Portland and was interviewed in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they said, you know, you're a lawyer. You should go to Eastern Europe and work for a like, pro-democracy NGO. And I was like, well, you know, my, my heart had kind of been gravitating toward Africa. And I guess a third of volunteers go there. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. And so, and so I, I was like, well, you know, I think I really want to teach. And, you know, because I was also at that time thinking... You know, law is really it's a grinding profession and really stressful. Like maybe what I'll do is go into Peace Corps, um, get some teaching experience, and come back and be a teacher in the United States. And so I said, I'd really like to teach. And and she turned and looked at me, the recruiter that is, and said, Well, you're probably going to Africa then. And they looked at my background. They said, Well, you can teach math. And mm-hmm. I said, Great. And so I I eventually got an invitation to teach math in Southern Africa. And so then I went online and did some research and found out that there were three countries that could possibly be sent to where Peace Corps had math teachers, um, Malawi, Mozambique, and Namibia. And then shortly before I, I uh, went to uh, you know, the, the meetup before getting on the plane and leaving for Malawi, um, I found out it was Malawi mm-hmm. and you know, frantically researched this country i'd never heard of called malawi (laughs) what do they speak what do they eat what's the climate animals you know where am i going to go live and of course like that knowledge was so cursory compared to the body of knowledge i have now so it it almost seems like it's not worth researching but you can't help yourself Mm -hmm. um yeah and it was great i was part of a great group um and and i uh it's funny i mean we all sort of establish identities in life and uh i think you know, I, 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 there are a number of ways I could describe myself, um, but the the only way I really find myself, the, the way I self-identify, is Peace Corps volunteer. Like that's the that sort of is the one label that captures everything that I want that that I want you to know about me. And mm-hmm. and when I'm in the company of Peace Corps volunteers, I feel like I'm an, at home in a way. Uh, I don't when I'm in the company of uh, lawyers or in the company of engineers or in the company of other labels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you found yourself in Malawi, mm-hmm. a country that you didn't know much about, uh, teaching math, which as an engineer, very competent in math, but I assume not a lot of teaching experience. Prior That's right. To, all right, prior to Peace Corps. How how was that tra- transitioning into a a teaching role and what did your classes look like your school were you teaching to a small classroom of 20 or a classroom of 80 100 paint a paint a picture for us yeah so i think at that time this dovetails with a story we'll probably get into later about how the african development bank was had financed through the malawian government a renovation of my secondary school but when i first arrived that renovation was underway it wasn't finished. And I think the enrollment was still quite small. I think it was like 200, 250 at the school. 
I think it's probably close to twice that now. And so in the, in the younger grade in the, in the earlier grades, like what we would call freshman or sophomore year of high school here, the, the classes, you know, were upwards of, you know, 50 to 70 kids. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, they take an exam after the second year and they kind of get thinned out. And, um, in the, what we would call junior and senior years of high school, the class sizes were much smaller. Um, but it was, yeah, it was interesting. I think the, the challenge there, I mean, there were several challenges. It's not the, you know, there's so, I mean, one is that, uh, some Malawians think of math as like magic, you know? Uh, and, and they think it's, uh, it's not something that a lot of Malawians can do. Mm-hmm. Like they haven't been endowed with the ability to understand math. And that was, that was sad to hear. Um, you know, some, thankfully my best students didn't believe that. Um, there's a great deal of talent in the village that just is untapped. And so, um, there was a lot of like capacity for learning, understanding mathematical concepts, applying mathematical concepts. I had some great students. Um, but in general it was seen as kind of like a, a really tough subject for them. Um, the, Another challenge was that the uh, skill levels were all over the map, and so you're teaching to a class. So I just knew that, like, like what do you in that case? How do you teach? Do you teach to the t- top students? Do you teach to the, you know, the middle of the road, or do you teach to the students who are struggling? And and so that was hard. Language is also an issue, particularly in the lower grades, where you know the kids learn some English in primary school, but they often come in expecting to use. Um, a lot of the local language, Chichewa, um, in their, their first and second years before developing the English skills to, to, to thrive in, in the third and fourth years. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, buildings that were not nice, um, during the rainy season, rain pouring down on the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't hear yourself talk. You certainly, you know, it's very hard to teach, um, lack of resources, teaching resources, um, in terms of, uh, you know, just anything from chalk and erasers to the ability to create quizzes or tests or, you know, writing instruments. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of, you're always working in a, a deprivation environment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was tough. And then on top of that, like, what the kids are really interested in is passing the national exam, which is administered by the Malawian government. And so, you know, trying to combine, you know, uh, sort of the importance of learning as many mathematical subjects and topics as possible, and also um, teaching to some extent to the test so they can do well. Mm -hmm. And how did you spend your time outside the classroom as a volunteer? Uh, Just your free time and also those other projects that volunteers uh, find themselves in. Yeah. So, um, as you know, you know, you just have a lot of free time, even when you're at a school, which is a little more structured, you know, there were health volunteers and, um, environment volunteers in Malawi and their lives were much less structured. I think that was frustrating for some people. Teachers tended to have a little more structure because they had to teach during the day, but there's a lot of time in the afternoon, evenings, weekends. And so I kind of threw everything against the wall to see what would stick. It was probably overkill. Um, I just, I don't like, uh, sitting still. So I, you know, anything Peace Corps would introduce, I would try to introduce to the village. So whether that was trying to make, uh, you know, you know, briquettes from, you know, agricultural waste material that they could use for cooking or, 
you know, there was a, for a while going through Peace Corps Malawi, there was like a cement peanut grinder that you could, that you could get from the Peace Corps office. And so I brought that in to see if we could start grinding peanuts and saving women time, you know, who, who would do it by hand. Um, I did environmental projects. And for, in fact, uh, there are only really two things I did, I feel like, that really stuck with people. Um, you know, it, and that's fine. I mean, I think a lot of it is trial and error. But one thing I did that worked was um, a wildlife club at my school. We planted trees um, all over the campus. And it's, what's really cool is that w- with trees is that if they don't cut them down, if you care for them when they're seedlings and then um, they don't get cut down, you can revisit your school you know, years later and you can see these beautiful trees. So, you know, we grew a lot of these trees from seed. Um, mm-hmm. Some we got as seedlings and we just covered the school, the campus with trees. And, you know, as you know, in Africa, there, you know, trees are, are really important meeting places and, you know, the sun can be quite hot. So they're great for shade and just for relaxation. So now the campus is like really wooded, which is cool. And then the other thing I did that really worked was guacamole. Um, <laughs> okay, you're, you're going to need to explain a little bit more guacamole. Yeah, so I was located in, the, in southern Malawi, mm-hmm. um, in the Malonje district. And Malonje is known for its beautiful mountain, Mount mm-hmm. Malonje. It's one of the tallest mountains in Africa. It's uh, an amazing place to hike. Um, just pristine and gorgeous, although, unfortunately, it's, it's being overlogged at the moment. But um, Malonje is known as a big fruit district. Mm-hmm. And uh, that includes pineapples and you know all the oranges and all the normal fruits but also a lot of avocado and so they you know the folks at my school had never combined avocado with onion you know they had onion they had avocado they had lemon um they had salt and so we just kind of put it together for them and uh it was a hit yeah and 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 i will get text messages today from students you know (laughs) saying and you know now I, i sort of served at a really interesting time because um we had just gotten um, like basic feature phones, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't always work. And um, you know, the, the service was often pretty bad. But uh, I was sort of there at the beginning of the the communication revolution in Malawi. Malawi is a very densely populated country, so there's a lot of cell service, um, even even into the remote areas. And so now, you know, the country is is doing quite poorly, you know, economically and in terms of development indicators but um it has a pretty pretty amazing communication network for at least developed country um so so i was able after my peace corps service to connect with a lot of people and almost kind of kind of keep the experience going Mm -hmm. to a certain extent in a way that you know if i'd served 10 years prior you know it wouldn't have been possible yeah um so anyway i do get messages from students saying we made guacamole tonight because in malawi the, the the staple is in sema Mm-hmm. Um, which is basically corn mush and boiled corn flour. And then they add to it greens. And um, sometimes if they're very lucky, you know, some meat, maybe some chicken or some goat. Um, and so they will make guacamole with the enzima. That will be the, the indiwo, which is the relish or the side dish. And how did they eat uh, avocados prior to uh, your, your guacamole education program? <laughs> Yeah, so in, in Malawi, um, fruits are considered, zapatso is the, is the word for fruits, and it, they're considered to be desserts. So people would eat a meal, and then they would have an avocado for dessert, if they were lucky. I mean, there's an avocado season, um, so it's, you know, it's, they're sort of plentiful for a short period of time. 
in, particularly in the South, and then they go away. Um, but yes, um, considered uh, to be a fruit in a in a after dinner treat. Mm-hmm. Well, now we have a good idea of the the work that you were doing as a volunteer, uh, teaching tree planting guacamole, most importantly, uh, mm. <laughs> and. Now I want to switch and transition a little bit to the things you you struggled with. Mm-hmm. What was hard for you as a volunteer, uh, specifically something that was hard that you didn't think would be hard? Hmm. Well, I guess going in, I didn't know what to think, to be honest. Um, I think I think the uncertainty of the entire experience was hard. <laughs> uh not just feeling like I couldn't be in the loop until I actually lived it. Um, and every Peace Corps volunteers experience is unique. So it's very hard to get information from other volunteers and expect, well, it's great to sort of piece together a mosaic, you know, listening to a lot of other volunteers, but you can't, you need a pretty large sample size to get a full picture. Um, what I found well, I'll just talk, I'll just think about what I found hard in general was just, um, I being very isolated mm-hmm. and so struggling with loneliness and, you know, you're around people all the time and you're around people who are quite social. Malawians are very outgoing and they expect you to be outgoing and they, they're not really, um, too, too psyched about Peace Corps volunteers who just hide in their homes. You know, they, they think there's something wrong with them. They feel sorry for them. Um, I'm a natural extrovert, so I was out you know, among the people and having a great time. But I think secretly feeling uh, still very lonely. Like, uh, you know, you never fit in. You're, you're always an outsider. Um, there's amazing hospitality in Malawi. But, but there's sort of this unspoken understanding that, you know, your time there is temporary. Mm-hmm. And so I did a pretty deep dive into the culture and the language and tried to fit in as much as I could. But I never, I could never become Malawian. And that was, that was sort of a tough realization for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I experienced a level of connection and intimacy with other Peace Corps volunteers that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't achieve with uh, my friends in the village. Um, since then, I've become so close to some of my friends in the village that I, I think of them as, like, I think I'm closer to them as, a, as like, a human being than I, than I am to some of my, some of the Peace Corps volunteers I served with, but, um, it's taken a, a decade to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot more time working together and building trust and, but yeah, I think it's, it's tough. I mean, uh, I, the, the word I, the phrase I use to describe it is cultural dissonance. You're just constantly feeling like this blanket of dissonance. Like, uh, I, I don't understand quite what's happening here. Um, I'm catching most of what that person is saying, but maybe not everything. Um, I, it, it, it's, it takes a lot of energy just to leave the house and go to the market. Cause you know, that people are going to yell at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're gonna, you know, a Zungu, a Zungu, you know, Zungu is the term for outsider. Um, and particularly a white outsider, um, or light skinned outsider. And so it's, uh, you know, you hear that constantly. Uh, you want to develop intimate relationships with people, but there are a lot of barriers. So I think, um, yeah, just that sense of, I feel tremendously lonely and isolated. That was by far the hardest part. Uh, you know, for some people it's, uh, you know, bugs or snakes or, uh, 
um, other pests. Um, it's the fact that you're, you know, you're living without climate control or you have to like haul water from the borehole back to your house, or you have to build a fire every night to cook your dinner. Um, and all those things were, were definitely hardships and they added, added to the stress. But I think that for me, the toughest thing was just like wanting a really deep human connection with someone and feeling like, uh, it wasn't happening as quickly as I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And now you're back in the United States and you have this organization, mm-hmm. Village X, uh, that's doing work in Malawi that you founded post-Peace Corps service. But going into Peace Corps, you did not intend, this was not on the list of things to do, that you didn't think that you would go through Peace Corps and then found this organization. Because you said you were thinking maybe teaching would be an option. Mm-hmm. You were still uh, sort of feeling things out. What happened in your service or what did you learn in your service that then made this something you had to do? Yeah, so I think um, the short answer is I just got really pissed off. <laughs> I, you know, you're living in this village. Peace Corps volunteers have been in the country for, at this point, 40, almost 50 years. You know, you're, you're trying your best to help but you're just seeing a lot of problems around you that, you know, are overwhelming. Um, so I, I, you know, I think there's a tendency for some people to sort of romanticize living in Africa. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons to do that. It's Malawi in particular is gorgeous. The people are wonderful. It's the warm heart of Africa. Um, it's, uh, it's a very easy place to fall in love with, but there's also grinding extreme poverty. And so you see, you know, I lost uh, students. You know, I, I, this probably happened to you in Burkina. You just wake up one morning and someone says, this student passed away. Well, what, you know, I'm an American. I, I need cause and effect. Like, mm-hmm. what caused the student's death? Well, we're not sure. You know, just whatever it was, God's will or something else. And um, so there's, it's, it's a, uh, that's just one example, but there's, you know, high infant and maternal mortality in Malawi. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are really struggling just to put food on the table. Um, there, you know, are huge, uh, gaps in, uh, education and health infrastructure, um, transportation infrastructure, um, just tons of corruption. And so I kind of, I kind of wanted to figure out I, you know, I go into Peace Corps as a, as a lawyer, a patent lawyer, so I didn't know much about international development. And I felt like as a Peace Corps volunteer, I, I, got, I gained like this sort of grassroots, gritty, authentic perspective on what's really happening in development. And I, I kept noticing throughout my service, and then after my service, I went back and visited several times in 2000. I left service in 2008 and went back in 2009 and 2011 and 2014 and I've been back um, a couple of times since, and I kept noticing that things were moving in the wrong direction. Um, and uh, I guess what one thing that inspired me that I'll mention right after my service is that I came home, and I definitely um, had a hard time, like in the last six months of my service, just uh, 
I don't know if it was the transition that was bothering me. It was, uh, you know, you know, feeling like I hadn't accomplished much, uh, you know, not understanding kind of the forces at work around me, um, maybe like at higher levels, um, of maybe in the, in the capital, um, and just trying to figure out why, uh, why, why Malawi was struggled so mightily. And, 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 and I got a call, uh, that my headmaster who had been one of my best friends in Peace Corps, uh, headmaster of my school was sick. And then I got a call about a day and a half later that he had passed away. And he told me, I, I was able to talk to him, um, um, shortly after the first call. And he told me that he was HIV positive and I hadn't known that. Uh, I didn't know that Malawi had an HIV problem. Um, it was about 14% infection rate when I was there. I think it's now down to between 11 and 12. So they've made some progress, but, um, yeah, so it was really, you know, and on top of leaving and, and coming back to the United States and trying to transition from living in an African village to living in Washington, D.C., and um, trying to figure out why Malawi is so poor, I get this call, and my headmaster had passed away, you know, left three daughters and a wife. And so I, I think at this point I was just, and I think a lot of Peace Corps volunteers struggle with this, I was just really pissed off. <laughs> you know, like, okay, I've gone, I've gone to, uh, I, I, I've seen it. You know what I mean? Like I haven't, I haven't stayed at a fancy hotel. I haven't flown into Malawi, stayed at a fancy hotel, you know, looked at, you know, experienced Malawi through the window of an SUV. You know, I haven't, I haven't uh, retreated to uh, a bar in the capital, you know, to hide away, to hide away from the problems. I was living in the problems. I experienced the problems firsthand and they had affected me. And I decided that uh, I would at least try to figure out why, Malawi was getting a billion dollars a year in international aid and seemed to be getting uh, worse in the, in the rural areas. And 85% of the Malawian population lives in the rural areas. So, I mean, that's a long-winded way of saying I was just pissed. Um, like, where's this money going? Who is it helping? Why are people struggling so much? And so I started digging into it and researching and reading lots of books. And I even went back to... Um, to school and got a master's in public policy studying international development because I, I cared so much about getting to the bottom of this question. And what I basically concluded is that, uh, the problem is politics or governance, uh, that, um, a lot of people come to Malawi and other African countries because they want to make a difference and they focus on a particular thing. Um, but, uh, like health or education or, you know, uh, sanitation, but, but they don't think about the politics. And, uh, and I also learned that because of the sort of dysfunctional political situation in Malawi, uh, a lot of the aid money or the, you know, much of it gets stuck in the urban areas where 15% of the population lives. A lot of it is spent on consultants coming from the United States. A lot of it is spent on the lifestyles of uh, Westerners who are recruited to live and work in these countries, but um, with very comfortable lifestyles, like very, um, you know, nice uh, standards of living. And so, yeah, I guess I, I was struck and offended by the inequality of that and also the inequality in combination with the poor performance of aid in general. So you're spending a lot of money on Malawian elites and on Western elites. So you have elite capture going on. 
the Malawian, the Western elites are actually coming from democratic countries, but the way they're running aid programs abroad is very non-democratic. And the Malawian elites are happy to get the aid uh, and use it to accomplish their goals. Maybe, maybe use a small portion of it to actually try to do some good, but a lot of it goes into administration or into corruption. And so the end result is kind of an aid-bloated country, about 40% of Malawi's um, uh, budget, government budget comes from aid. If you took aid away, you would collapse the economy. It's that bad. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what I could do as someone who had stayed in the country for a long time and had really focused on the issue of, of extreme poverty, what I could do to help change the politics of the country, to make it less, to make it more progressive and less regressive in terms of helping poor people. And so uh, what I settled upon, uh, you know, based on my Peace Corps experience and also academic research I had read, is that um, a lot of people think of Africa as, you know, 50-some uh, pretty autocratic countries, and that would be correct. I mean, elections don't, just because you have elections doesn't mean you're, you're democratic. There's a, you know, there's a term that political scientists use called competitive authoritarian, which basically means you have elites that are competing for the pot of natural resource money or aid money, whatever it may be, or both. Um, there's very little democracy going on. There's just elites fighting among themselves and, uh, and using tools of the state like state-owned media to, um, to manipulate elections and other forms of electoral manipulation. And so um, a lot of people think of Africa as this like, you know, land of, of, of corruption and, and autocracy. And, and I think of it as a Peace Corps volunteer as like tens of thousands of democratic villages. Because it turns out that villages are actually quite democratic, which is, which is sort of counterintuitive because chiefs um, are not democratically elected typically. Uh, but because these are chiefs uh, living among their people in small rural communities, um, there's a lot of interpersonal accountability. And so whenever you do a project, um, you know, any Peace Corps volunteer knows you have to go through the chief. And so I, I, I thought to myself, could we come up with some sort of uh, platform that would allow us to, part, uh, to partner directly with villages in rural Africa where extreme poverty is growing. It's the only place in the world where extreme poverty is growing, which is good. Um, I mean, it's bad that it's growing there, but it's good that it's not growing anywhere else. Could we, could we, could we deploy a new, innovative, scalable, hyper-efficient model to reach all these rural villages? Places where the old aid model wouldn't work. You know, getting the SUV, fueling it up, driving out, you know, spending all sorts of money on Westerners and this and that. Can we, can we, can we really trim that, you know, can, can we go in a different direction and introduce a model um, that, could, that could help um, rural communities? And so we partner with villages directly at, at Village X. The villages choose the projects they want, so it's completely democratic. And if you've ever seen a village make a choice, it's, you know, as we have, having lived in villages, they all come together, they sit under a tree, and they talk until they come up with a, what they want to do. Um, our model is somewhat unique in that we require villages to contribute their own cash. 
because one thing I noticed in Peace Corps is that projects um, often would boast that the community provided materials and labor, but those are easy things for communities to provide. So we decided, like, let's let's make them pony up cash. Actually, you know, have some skin in the game. So they they choose the projects, they put in their own cash. We post their projects to our website, and then we crowdfund money for their projects. These are projects chosen, partially financed, implemented, and documented by communities. And so the communities are doing all the work, and the communities are taking some of the risk. And so that that was kind of the idea. And then we have field officers who kind of provide light oversight, and the field officers have smartphones, and so they they get back to us pictures, videos, and then development data on how the villages are doing. Um, and the, the big idea, the big picture idea, which gets me very excited, is that um, rural communities are really important in national politics. So in Zimbabwe, um, you know, there, there was just a, essentially a coup. <laughs> and then an, ele- an election, a flawed election. Um, and it turns out that the ruling party in Zimbabwe uh, that won has really like a strong presence in the rural areas. And so, uh, and, and I think that's true in a lot of African countries. And so the exciting thing is if you can, if you can go to these rural chiefs and you can offer them essentially direct democracy through funding for public goods that benefit everyone in their village. Um, one, one issue is what happens developmentally. And we've, we've seen great impacts from that. Um, but the bigger issue is what happens politically at the, at the regional or the national level. Will these villages then stop, you know, um, will they be able to break free from patronage networks, um, that have caused them to vote for say the ruling party for a long time in what are essentially sham elections and will they uh, sort of free them to vote for candidates who might be much more innovative and progressive, uh, and forward looking. Um, and so, you know, I think aid, one thing I've, I've learned in the last 10 years is that a lot of people like to treat aid as this like non-political, um, technocratic thing. And, um, it's just not, you know, whether you're, whether you're in Africa giving money or you're not in Africa giving money, you're that either way you're engaging in a political act. And so that being true, you better think about the politics of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so we're deliberately thinking about the politics. Um, we're not interested in, um, you know, just giving some, just doing some small projects in villages. We're interested in, if we were to scale this, if we got money from AID or from, you know, a big foundation and we were able to scale this to cover, let's say, all the extreme poverty villages in Malawi, um, would those villages over time change their voting patterns? And would that make politicians in the capital city more responsive to the people? And it's that feedback and that responsiveness that has to occur in Africa for Africa to take off economically um, and, um, and socially. Yeah. A lot of layers there. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I enjoy it. You know, the, the progression of a lot of times you don't think past the, the, the project and the implications of the project and how the, the management of the project community buy-in and what does that empower them to do and what is the rippling effect of that for the country as a whole. Uh, and it's exciting to hear that you're thinking of that and that it isn't uh, just project-based and it isn't also cookie-cutter project-based where I saw this as well that you know you 
a, an aid organization comes in to a community with the project already fully baked. Right. You know, they, I, I spent days convincing women that I worked with uh, that this project was a bad idea, that this A group had come in, they were building uh, sort of biogas generators. They would say you put a vegetable waste in them, uh, you know, it rot, it released methane, you could capture the gas and use it to cook. And they're like, oh, great, they're going to come in, they're going to build this thing for us. Perfect. The women already had a use for the vegetable scraps, for, for the, <laughs> the corn husk that was providing per unit more energy than it would be to break it down in the release of methane. And I, they just they didn't see that because someone was coming in to give them a thing, so things are good. Uh, and it, it's great to hear that you, know, you saw that, you saw the error in that, and then you're fixing that. So w- what are some of the projects that the communities are independently deciding that they need? Yeah, so... Um what we've learned, having done maybe like 43 projects or so by now, um, thereabouts, is that uh, clean water is fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um, and clean water is great, but what I often say is that what we're going for develop, you know, we sort of have these two buckets. One is the political aspect of what we're doing. The other is the developmental aspect. Um, are these communities actually developing? Are they, uh, are they better off than uh, they would have been? Um, in our absence. And so clean water is great. We do boreholes mostly. Um, we, we finance boreholes and that's the one project where we bring in a contractor. Mm-hmm. Usually communities, if we do teacher houses or nursery schools, um, communities will just build those on their own, um, which is wonderful. So more money stays in the community. It's circulating. There's a multiplier effect economically. Um, but, uh, I often, you know, there are a lot of NGOs that are doing like single issue things. And what we're really trying to do developmentally is, is um, achieve some sort of synergy. Um, we're looking at projects, uh, villages that are partnered with us, get, uh, we fundraise essentially one project per year for them. And so we're really interested in you know, what they choose in terms of projects and the progression in which they choose them and then why they choose them. Um, and what, that, what we can learn from that in terms of uh, you know, uh, if, if we scale up, um, being able to use all that data to sort of um, predict what villages want. Yeah, mapping out a, a hierarchy of needs as they see them rather than as we see them. Exactly. So creating, I mean, that kind of the big idea for Village X is, is a democracy map. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but a, a, t- a democracy map with a time dimension so that you, um, it's not just, you know, what villages want today, but it's what they wanted in the last five years and it's what they're, you know, want in, we think they're going to want in the next five years. Mm -hmm. Um, and then trying to use that information to inform the big NGOs and the government. Um, so that, um, we're, we're not, I'm not looking to like, I'm not a revolutionary looking to like tear down the government or, and I don't, I don't think it's realistic to get rid of big NGOs, however annoying I may find them at times. Um, but I do think it'd be nice if, a 5% or 10% of aid money going to Malawi were uh, focused on where 85% of the population lives and that um, uh, we used a hyper-efficient model to deploy the funds and get maximum impact per dollar spent. Um, that, that to me is very exciting and, and that we could bring more of these, you know, you sort of think of civil, civil society as a sort of like pluralistic, diverse group of organizations and people. And if, if we could get those people around the idea of 
well, it's fine. To, it's fine to be a water NGO and it's fine to be a girls education NGO and it's fine to be a this or that NGO, but you've got to make sure that you align what you're doing with what the community wants. And then you can, you can maximize your impact um, and you can achieve that synergy I was talking about over time. So a lot of it is like, let's create this democracy map and help use it, uh, have it be a resource for other groups that are, that are going to work in Malawi, whether we like it or not. Um, and then that's the development side. Um, we, what we do is we measure, we have villages where we do projects and we have villages that want to do projects with us. And so we use that second group as a control group and we, we employ what in econometrics is called a difference in differences analysis, basically, um, measuring, I think 17 indicators per village per year. Um, anything from kilograms of maize to um, number of uh, homes with iron sheets on the roof per capita, kids in school from nursery all the way to, to tertiary, um, lifestyle indicators like um, number of motorcycles, um, number of TVs, uh, goats, cows, basically choosing easy to, easy to spot indicators that are directly connected to how people in villages like to spend their money when they have more of it. Mm-hmm. And so what we're not, you know, you can, you can also do something that's very time consuming and expensive called household surveys where you're going hut to hut. Um, we don't have that kind of budget. So we're looking for data that's easy to collect, but um, highly predictive of, of growth. And so um, we collect that, those 17 indicators per year from each village control treatment. And then we basically run a comparison and we can suss out which of those indicators uh, have changed um, in the treatment villages and in which directions and whether it, that change is statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's been pretty amazing. We've seen you know, huge increases, 70% reductions in waterborne illness. Um, I have to look at my website to get the latest <laughs> numbers. Um, but something like uh, you know, 100% increases in non-agricultural businesses, which we never would have we never would have predicted. Like we, we're not a business NGO. Mm-hmm. We're not a girls' education NGO. But we're seeing, you know, statistically significant um, increases, strong increases in uh, girls in secondary school and girls in nursery school, boys in nursery school. Um, as I said, reductions in waterborne illness. Um, one area where we have not um, moved the needle much is agricultural production. Mm-hmm. So what we're thinking about doing there is offering loans, agricultural loans to partner communities, because agriculture is something that, you know, it's a, it's an investment and they could pay back a loan. They could get a annual loan of $2,000 or so get fertilizer, which is what they really want in terms of agricultural inputs. They have the seeds. And then, um, if they have good rainy season, significantly boost production and then, pay off the loan and then it's there for them the next year. So we're thinking about doing agricultural loans to, to sort of boost, uh, to help, to help them boost a metric that we haven't touched yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, of all the metrics we measure, we've measured statistically significant increases on many of them. Um, and oftentimes the, the causal pathways are things that were very hard to see from the outside. So it turns out that, um, you know, we've seen, you know, major increases in, in, um, goat populations in villages. And that makes sense because we provide goat herds for villages when they ask for them. Um, goats are a renewable resource. You know, if you manage the herd properly, it can become 
quite big quite quickly. Goats are very hardy. They reproduce well. Um, the, of course, there's no guarantee this would have happened. It was, could have been quite possible that we, we uh, crowdfunded a goat herd for a village. They got the goat herd, and they just all ate the goats. Mm-hmm. Had a party. Had a party. They had a big party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the past, that has happened to aid organizations. Um, but in our model, people are putting in their own cash. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an expectation that when the goat reproduces, it'll be shared out to another community member. So there's not an incentive to kill the goat right away and eat it. Um, they're all female goats. So they are capable of, if, you, if you're a little bit forward-looking, they're capable of giving you, adding value to you. Um, and so we're seeing uh, great results. And what we're finding is that goats are unlocking education for girls. Mm-hmm. I never would have... I lived in, in uh, rural Malawi for over two years. Um, I speak the language. I, I'm, you know, for, for an outsider, I feel like I'm, I'm sort of an insider. And uh, I never would have seen that. So a lot of what we're trying to do is say, let's, let's just everyone chill out. You know, we're spending a billion a year in this country, not just the U.S., but collectively. Let's try to figure out what people actually want a little bit. And, you know, maybe they can teach us a few things in terms of uh, the, what's going to create the biggest bang for the, for the buck. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Congress will be happier because aid money will be spent better, you know, People who give to philanthropic organizations will be happier because they'll actually get to see more of a return on their philanthropic investment. So, you know, let's and let's use democracy as our organizing principle for this. Let's not use what you cooked up, you know, in your office with your buddies at, at USAID. Let's use democracy and let's say we're the world's greatest democracy. I think we're in crisis right now, but we still are. And, you know, we should be projecting democracy abroad, even in developing countries. We shouldn't be uh, bankrolling autocrats like we've been doing for decades. And we shouldn't be um, treating aid as some sort of top-down anti-democratic exercise. Mm-hmm. It, just, it, it, it is inconsistent with our values. I have a lot of questions, probably <laughs> some that, I, that we can table uh, post-interview about how you use the metrics, uh, things that you adjust for, want to dig into agriculture, want to know if you've teased out the thing, uh, the relationship to, to goats and uh, uh, young girls' education, uh, but I'm not going to do that while, while listeners are, are, are tuning in because uh, maybe they're not as big of a geek as I am about some of these things. Uh, but the villages, mm-hmm. how, how are they selected? Is this a self-nomination where they're coming to you and say, we want to be part of this program? Or I'm guessing initially, no one, no one knew about you when you started. They're, right. you know, Village X. So how did you pick? How did you pick the first ones, and how did new ones come on to the program? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in the future, we'd like to randomize mm-hmm. and um, you know approach villages randomly. Um, what we, what we, the beginning Village X from the beginning has really been an experiment. Um, I wanted to do something. Uh, post Peace Corps that would actually that was very ambitious that 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 could scale that had impact and huge impact per dollar spent um, and that could possibly address the core problem which is bad politics um, and so from the beginning it wasn't like selling I I I I didn't want to sell Village X as this like silver bullet instead I wanted to treat it as um, a, a geeky, wonky, nerdy, t- 
technocratic experiment in grassroots development. And so um, the villages we chose were just clusters of villages or I'd say, you know, village cluster areas around where we had some contacts. And we started in, in um, rural Malawi in the south. Um, like there was a cluster close to where I served in Peace Corps. There was a cluster in another district close to where one of the co-founders had grown up. Um, and then we sort of threw our... The one great thing about Peace Corps is you have this, this amazing network of relationships. I think it's often like sorely underutilized um, by people in development. But um, so we, we have this amazing network. We can, it's, it's like the, you know, place a phone call and probably land almost anywhere in Malawi with someone, a friend of a friend and a connection. And so that's kind of how we grew. Um, and then we just recently this year, we were just in the South initially. And then recently this year just went to like the Northern edge of the South, a place called Mangochi. Um, and which has a different population, different tribal population, different religious population than the area we had been working in. And then we also went all the way up north to northern Malawi. And just, just experimenting. Like, is this model going to work in different places? We also went from one field officer, uh, who was my co- co- Malawian co-founder, Myson Jambo, to I think we have five field officers now. So the other experiment was like, can this scale in terms of finding young people who are willing to do sort of village X work, oversight work with villages on a part-time basis using only a smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, you know, we, they get a little bit of money when a project is, is um, funded, um, but a very small amount, like 35 bucks, well, 35 US dollars, which is not, not a tiny amount for them, but it's not a huge amount, much less than what you find other organizations paying. Um, but they get to work with communities and um they get to sort of be involved on the ground floor of an ngo that might become much bigger village x has from the beginning been very experimental and and the experimentation is terms of like development like do villages want this if they do does it help them at all can can we staff up a, a field officer corps and will they like do their jobs well uh, are they you know are they you know can they learn how to use a smartphone really well in terms of like sending high quality pictures and videos um can they learn how to um to you know send us pictures that we know donors and other westerners will like you mm-hmm. know like that sort of so that's part of it um technology you know can we do this technologically? Can we transfer money easily to Malawian banks? Um, can we get money out of those banks easily and to the ground? Um, you know, what are the costs involved? Um, you know, there's just, there's so many things that sort of so many like mini experiments that are occurring at the same time. Um, and it, it's, it's been fun to kind of tackle each challenge. Um, but it all has to come together in some this ni- nice little cohesive package to work mm-hmm. and it has um, um the the hardest part of the experience has been uh exposure so getting people um tuned into what we're doing and why we're doing it and getting people excited about from a donor perspective what it's like to have um you know really high return on investment per dollar donated and then to have 
really awesome clarity in terms of how your donation has helped. So you get to see your impact and you also get to see data you give to a village project and then you get to see data on that village. So you can go to our website and click on a project, scroll to the bottom of the project and see the data for that village and how the village has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the fact that you do view it as an experiment, that it's, it's ongoing. You're figuring things out along the way. Uh, and, and two questions sort of uh, come out of that one that's more, uh, philosophical and do you ever have anybody pushing back in the blowback of the fact that you have villages that you're working with and then controls and -hmm. under that scenario you are withholding something from that control village Mm -hmm. something that could help them uh in the in order for it to be an experiment how do you come to terms with that i i I personally understand how Mm -hmm. one could come to terms with that it's not too hard for me but do you ever have that that comment or criticism uh with the way that village x is is structured yeah i think we i think we would if we had funds in reserve Mm -hmm. and and we were we just uh deprived villages of of receiving funds that were available Mm -hmm. but um you know one of the biggest challenges of running a nonprofit is fundraising and getting people um excited we have a we've decided to go with crowdfunding because it's so scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we want anyone in the world who wants to give to us with a credit card to be able to give. Um, you know, other, we also don't have um, the time uh, because this is, a, this is a, a Peace Corps passion project side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, don't have the time to, um, you know, throw big galas and, you know, have, have a big like mail marketing campaign or anything like that. So we're, we're sort of like under the radar, slowly building. Um, so funding has been like the people who like our platform, love our platform. Um, and we've been steadily growing, but we don't feel badly about the control villages because we just don't have, we're just not like flush with cash. Mm -hmm. When the cash comes in, it goes to a project, it leaves. It would be nice eventually to have a better idea. Like, like quarter to quarter, how much money we're going to raise so that we can give the villages more certainty. I think mm-hmm. that the most frustrating thing from the villages, villages love it. I mean, at first they were worried because NGOs come to villages all the time in Malawi with their cameras and take pictures and promise things and never come back. Mm-hmm. And so they were and like, and I knew that as a Peace Corps volunteer. And so um, we went in and we were like, here, you know, we're making promises. We're an NGO. And at first they were like, okay, well, we'll believe you when we see it. And then they started seeing it. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. Like, this is the first time ever an NGO has actually asked us what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of lip service given to community-driven development, but it's usually still quite top-down mm-hmm. um, and, and, uh, and sort of um, controlled through um, government officials and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, villages love it. They wish there were more certainty uh, in terms of like when they're going to get their funds because sometimes it could be... We could have a, someone passionate about a project and two weeks after it goes up, it gets funded. And then we could have another project that sits for eight months and doesn't get funding. And the village is like going to the field officer and saying, you know, where's our funding? Where's our funding? We want to do this project. Um, so it'd be nice eventually to have a little bit more funding volume and more certainty and be able to deploy it out in a more um, steady fashion. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't worry about so much about the control villages because they all know that by participating as control villages, they will eventually be part of the treatment village program. Okay. And do you ever see it losing the, the sense of experimentation? 
Um, I hope not. I mean, what I what I've tried to do from the beginning, I'm super nerdy, and I want from the beginning I've tried to connect this to academics. And what I'd really like to do is we need to scale to about 300 villages um, to be at a volume at which we can do a randomized controlled trial. Um, and there are lots of academic partners, I think, who would be interested in doing that and would, who, who could finance that. Mm-hmm. So, um, How many are you at now? Oh, we are at villages where we're, we've actually done at least one project. Mm-hmm. Maybe 20. Okay. Something like that. So um, 20 to 300. Yeah, yeah. But it's just a matter, the nice thing about it is um, it's a tech platform. Mm-hmm. And so it re- does. It would require um, more of our time in terms of sending the transfers, the cash transfers to Malawi mm-hmm. if we scaled up. But um, the, be- the beautiful th- part of the model is that 90% of the work is done on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so the field officers are working part-time. So... Like it's not super taxing for them because they can have it's kind of their side hustle, and then um, and they and they can do many more villages than they're currently doing, and then villages are doing all the you know the, the budgeting, the choosing, the bot purchasing of the materials they need, the implementation, with a couple of exceptions like boreholes. So it's highly scalable. Um, there will of course be management challenges that arise as we scale, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I'm feeling much, I think it's a much more scalable model than most of what I see in the NGO community because mm. it's, it's so hands off. Um, it's sort of like, this is your problem. You know, you guys are living in extreme poverty. It sucks. We want to help you. Um, you, we have a feeling that you know better than we do how to pick that low hanging fruit and take a step to the next level. We're not, uh, trying to create like, you know, you know, uh, you know, some fancy neighborhood in Northwest DC, you know, (laughs) that's not our model. Uh, but we would like to see people, um, escape from extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. And we, and we think that maybe for for them to escape from, um, let's say they escape from extreme poverty and then for them to get to the next level, they need a paved road or something because they need better access to markets. Well, that's a perfect project for a government. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what we're doing. What we're saying is these, these villages are a place where there's a great deal of human suffering that occurs. It doesn't need to occur. Um, if these folks could choose their own pathway to development over the course of, let's say, a decade, where they start, let's say, they, off, they often start with clean water and then, well, they want to bolster their educational system so they add some teacher houses so that they can attract some more teachers and they get some goats because goats are, you know, reproduce a lot and so it's a renewable resource and then they can use that to fund all sorts of things. They want to use that extra cash to add steel sheets to their home. So they, you know, better off there. Um, they want to build a nursery school so that the kids are getting early childhood education before they enter primary school. So more of their kids are passing the national examination. So these are all sort of, this is like, I'm trying to represent the synergy of what happens. And then the hope is that, you know, we've also thought about, um, eventually getting into solar, like microgrids as well. And so like, eventually they reach a state where they're not, by any means wealthy, they might not even be middle class, but they're, um, they're not, uh, suffering extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the next level is, okay, well, the government really does need to get its act together in terms of building a road or building a port or, you know, doing something that, um, will, uh, build upon the wealth creation that has already occurred in the villages. It's interesting that like in public policy, we talk about GDP for countries, 
but we rarely talk about GDP for villages mm-hmm. and, or we never talk about GDP for villages. And I think that's pretty interesting. Like, like why aren't we, why aren't we tracking that? That's mm-hmm. kind of a cool concept, like these micro economies and, and what a little bit of infusion of cash in the right spot at the right time, all directed by the democratic signal, what that does, because in, in, in the private markets, you have a clear signal. You have a market signal, you know, I'm selling this and you want to buy it, you know, you buy it. Oh, it's good. It sucks. You know, if it sucks, then people aren't going to buy it in, in the nonprofit and the philanthropy market. Um, there's, there's very little of that. Mm-hmm. So it's just like donor, you know, someone made a lot of money in real estate in DC and they want to, you know, they, they believe having never lived in a village that what's really important is, you know, whatever, um, you know, got to build, got to build the fancy school. Build the fancy school, mm-hmm. yeah, um, because that's that's in their uninformed opinion. That's what is needed, and um, so they've completely disempowered and, uh, and you know sort of removed the t- dignity from the people who are actually living there. And so what we're saying is like, let's dignify, let's empower, but let's do it uh, sort of embracing this principle of in place of a market signal, the democratic signal mm-hmm. in, in philanthropy. Well, Michael, I've had a a blast uh, talking with you and I've left so many questions unasked because I think uh, if given the chance, this could go on and on and on (laughs) as as, uh, we both geeked out. It seems like we're both sort of nerds for this uh, line of thinking. Uh, But in in closing or before we close, do you have anything else that you want to add that you want the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast to know about yourself or any, any plug message that you want to deliver, uh, the community and listeners. Yeah. Okay. So here's the, here's the thing I want people to know. Um, the greatest lesson I learned from Peace Corps was that people make sense that it's, it's very easy to sort of focus on differences and those differences are real. And, 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 you know, it's, I think it's, it's important to talk about them. Um, but when you sort of really in like embed and you, um, put yourself in the shoes of others and, and sort of look at the world through their perspective, their decisions really start to make a lot of sense. And so I think, um, there tends to be this, uh, this fallacy, I think in, that you see a lot in DC in, in the international community that, you know, we know best and, and that, uh, uh, our opinions matter more than the opinions of people who may have less education or less wealth. Um, and you know, I think, you know, that might be true in terms of making an HIV vaccine. Uh, I don't think you could pump like $3 billion into a Malawian village and you would not get an HIV vaccine. You probably want to invest in CDC and NIH and those Mm -hmm. folks, but, um, and you know, university researchers, but uh, there's a lot of stuff, uh, that people in developing countries know that we don't know. Uh, and there are a lot of decisions they make that make perfect sense given their environment, but may not make a lot of sense to us sitting, you know, far away in, in drinking our lattes in DC. So I, I just think, um, what Peace Corps taught me is to just, um, you know, be quiet and listen to, if you want to, if you really want to help someone, uh, it, shut, shut off your mouth and turn on your ears. Um, and that'll get you most of the way. And instead of calling it my Peace Corps story, what I'd like to call it is 
their story. Um, this, we need to, we need to kind of shift away from this. Uh, I love this. I love the title of your podcast. I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to change it, but, um, we need to kind of shift away from this sort of egocentric white savior mentality, mm-hmm. uh, that we have, uh, that many people have and shift more toward, um, uh, no, 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 you, you guys, it's, you know, you guys have the, have the problems. You understand them much better than we do. Uh, we're here to help with solutions, but you guys take the lead. So it's your story that we care about. It's, it's your voice we care about. Um, uh, and then um, just facilitate that exercise. And I, I think we uh, would be much more successful if we took that approach. Perfect way to uh, to wrap up your interview. And then the very last thing in closing, do you have a favorite local word saying phrase that you would like to share? Um, I have a couple. So one is just a word, mm-hmm. uh, kusengalala, which is just a word that it's just so it just flows off the tongue. Kusengalala. It's so beautiful. It just means to be happy. And Malawians, uh, despite all of their struggles, are really happy. Uh, well, at least outwardly happy and um, joyful people. Um, and so uh, I love that word. And then, uh, you know, the, the, the other side of Malawi, the, the side you see when you, when you stay for more than a week or two, uh, Zimachitika, which um, means literally things always happen, uh, but really means shit happens. <laughs> So I, I like that expression. Like, uh, the truck broke down. Zimachitika. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the storm knocked the roof off the school. Zimachitika. Well, thank you very much for, for ending on, on those two perfect phrases. Uh, I can't say it enough that it has been an absolute pleasure spending some time learning about your Peace Corps service, the stuff you're doing in Village X, uh, people look look out for village x search for it um in the show notes of my peace corps story you'll find all the links to everything village x related uh go check them out and you know support support their projects well thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure and there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This one went just a little bit longer than usual, but as you probably heard from the conversation, it could have been much longer. Uh, after we uh, hit the stop on the uh, recording device, I think Michael and I talked for another 45 minutes uh, just about Village X, then about Peace Corps, uh, international development, life, all sorts of stuff. Uh, This interview definitely could have been longer. And I've had the comment before that some people would like even longer interviews. Uh, If you would like longer interviews or you would like more short form interviews, something to break it up, like maybe weekly 15 minute, five minute interviews, uh, let me know. We'll go over to mypeacecoursestory.com, uh, leave me a comment, send me a note. I'd love to hear from you guys. And if you have not done so, as I said at the beginning, but you're probably busy doing something or you skipped right past my intro, please leave me a review over on Apple Podcast. It would be much appreciated. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours? What's yours?